The last word Jesus spoke from the cross was tetelestai. We translate that, it is finished. And with that, he paid the price of redemption for everybody who comes to believe in him. And he inaugurated, he began his kingdom here on earth. And someday soon he will come again in glory and power and majesty and might and he will say, it is done. And with that, he will renew all things as they were in the garden and he will consummate his kingdom with us forever. We're calling this series not yet finished, or already finished, but not yet done. Because we live in this tension of the reality that it is finished, it, it is inaugurated, but it's not fully consummated. And we're going through a 23-week series in Revelation and Daniel. In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll start into Daniel for a few weeks and then back and forth through them. But what we see in these books, both of them, and why we're doing them together, is we see that God is a kingdom God who calls kingdom people to his kingdom glory to see his kingdom come here on earth as it already is in heaven. God is a coming God. He came to Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to you if you're his, and he is going to come again in glory and power. And when he does, he's going to bring heaven with him. God is not in heaven wondering how all of this is going to work out. And that's another reason we're going to go through Revelation and Daniel, because he tells us, here's how all this is going to work out, and we can take great comfort in that. His bride, his church, is his method for bringing the kingdom here now. And that's why we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at a bride made ready. This is part one of a two-part series that we're going to look at in Revelation chapters two and three. Revelation, I said this last week, Revelation is written to awaken the church from its slumber so that we'd be a bride made ready for his return. Why? Like, why, why does it make us ready? Well, because it unveils for us. That's what the word revelation means. It's apocalypso in the Greek. It just means an unveiling of the fullness and the majesty of, of, and the power of who Jesus Christ is. And what it unveils to us is that we have conflict. That what we are experiencing now, the space between it is finished and it is done, is this conflict between two kingdoms. God's kingdom that is ruled by Christ and the world and our flesh that is ruled by Satan. And this conflict is raging on with, around us and oftentimes within our own flesh, even for those of us who are saved. Open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to do a little bit like I did last week, and I'm going to review a little bit of where we were last week because it runs right into where we are going to go this week in his message to the church. Do you remember John, the apostle, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John? He has been exiled on the island of Patmos. He's probably 90 years old at this point. This is the last letter of the book of the Bible that is written, and he is told to write this to the churches. But Jesus, his BFF, when he was here on earth, shows up in a slightly different form than he saw him as that gentle shepherd and I'm going to pick it up in verse 12, and he says this, and then I turn, so he hears this voice, drops him to his knees, it says, then I turn and I see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, that's just a picture of his Christ's majesty, with head and his hair were white like wool, 
like snow. That's a picture of his purity. And his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze. And when he had, as if to be made, as if to made, made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And that's a picture of Christ's authority. And then it says, and in his right hand, which is a picture of what Christ is doing now, that's a, what's in his right hand is a picture of what Christ is doing here now. He held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's moving forward to what we're going to see at the end of the book of Revelation, Lord willing. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at my feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Then I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write these things which you have seen, and the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things. And then he gives them a glimpse of, here's, here's something I just alluded to, John, and what I'm going to be telling you about next. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which, were, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And I talked last week about how Jesus is in the middle of his church, those seven lampstands, and he is holding the church in his right hand because we are what Jesus is doing now on the earth. We are kingdom people called to bring kingdom glory down here. Rather than spend all of our time waiting to get there, he's left us here to bring him here. The word is clear about that. If the church is what Christ bled and died for, should it not be what we live for? And I kind of went off a little bit last week about how we have so over-personalized our faith. We've made it all about just me and Jesus. The, the truth of Scripture is that, that it is his collective church, his bride, made up of a bunch of individuals that he is going to return for. He is passionately consumed with his church. The body of Christ collected and gathered together in local churches. How do I know that? Like, how do I know with, with all this strong, like, coming together, why does the church really matter? In an age where even people who are Christians have really downplayed the role of church for all kinds of reasons. How do I know that, that this idea that, that the church is really what Jesus is concerned about, how do I know that's true? Because in his last words in Revelation that we are reading now, he addresses the church, chapters 2 and 3, before he addresses the world, chapters 4 through 19. Why? Because it's the church that he really cares about. Because he is far more concerned about his people than he is about the world. Because we profess and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We are his ambassadors here on earth. So the question is, if it's what he is doing on the earth right now, and if it's what he's holding in his right hand, and it's what he bled and died for, are you engaged in it? Are you living for it? Are you on mission for him? Are you serving in his bride? About 40% of the people that regularly attend Cornerstone, that would call Cornerstone their church home, that we would call members at Cornerstone Church, about 40% of you actively serve in some, some way, shape, or form. And guys, that's 30% better than the national average in churches. So praise the Lord. But it also says, there's, it shows that there's a little bit of room for growth there as a church, right? 
for us to engage together in his missions because we believe in this, the power of the collective witness. That together, the one another's are how Christ displays his body here on earth today. None of us individually can be Jesus. None of us, even in our little small group Bible study, can be Jesus. Because we don't have all the gifts. If you're his, you were saved, sealed, gifted, and spiritually, supernaturally fit into a local body of believers to be him here. Amen. Th that takes a, a few people. Not just a handful. Not just two or more. That's why the church matters. It is what he is doing here on the earth today. So, Jesus is going to send this message to these seven churches. He deals with the seven churches before he deals with the world. And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at those seven churches. Those seven churches are, were all in what is, what is called Asia Minor today. It was, it was what they would have referred to as Asia, what we think of as modern-day Turkey. And these, these letters were not written to the individual church. They were written to all of them. How do we know that? Because this letter was written to be circulated among the churches and to the church today. So as we read through in chapters 2 and 3 these messages to the church at Ephesus, which will be the first one we're going to look at, that is a message not just to that church, it is a message to his church then and his church now. Because it was meant to be circulated among the church and to be preserved for his church now. So we don't want to look at it just from the view of, okay, well that was good for them, that was a message for them. No, we need to look at it from, that is a message for us today. It is, the, it is a message for his whole church for both then and for now. The way we're going to do this is kind of fun. We're going to have different men come up over the next two weeks and teach on 10 minutes, three of them today, and they're going to teach on diff, the, the, the different churches. Because we know up front that that does not do justice to the message Christ has given to each of those churches. Six years ago, we did a whole message on each of the churches, and that didn't do justice to the, to the message. I would encourage you to do your own study. I would encourage you to do the daily readings that Jeff talked about. They will help fill in a lot of the blanks for you. But ultimately, what I'm praying for and what we're praying for is that we wouldn't just look and go, yeah, look at that. It is so easy for us, guys. It is so easy for us as Christians. It is so easy for us, even, even at Cornerstone, as Cornerstone Christians, whatever that is, it's so easy for us to go, yeah, we're doing it better than them. At least we're not those people. Just fill in the blank for whatever that is. And guys, th that is not the message Christ has for us these two weeks. There is something here in each of these churches that, that is at the heart of our collective church and in my heart and in your heart individually. And we need to pray that he would reveal that to us because, and guys, this has been, and you've heard it in the two messages that I've preached the last two Sundays, and I know I've been harsh or hard. Um, my heart breaks for the condition of his bride. He's coming back. He's coming back for his church. And what we're going to see in the next two weeks is even then, 60 years after he rose again, it was not healthy, and it is not healthy today. And we can either just keep playing church and playing Christian and be one of those people that we're going to see in these seven churches that it does not end well, or we can get serious about Jesus and about his bride because he is.
Pray with me. So Father, as we look today at the question of what in the world is wrong with the church, I do pray that we would bring it down to this level, that we would look at this word that you're going to speak to us through the lens of scripture, but have it apply to Cornerstone Church, have it apply to our own hearts. Lord, I pray that what we lack in these next few moments you would give us. I pray that what we can't see in this short time we'll have with each church that you would show us. I pray that what we don't know, you would teach us. And most of all, Lord, I pray that what we are not, you would make us. To your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now I just want to remind us, as Doug just did, that this is Jesus talking to his church. The very same Jesus that we just read about, that John fell flat on his face. He's powerful and we need him desperately. And he has a problem with our church. And the problem, he tells us this in verse 4. It says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And the question that I first kind of thought of is, what is this love we had at first? What, what, is, what does that mean? And as I did some more study, I, I looked into this word abandoned. And this abandoned word in Greek is the same word that is used for divorce. They translate it to divorce as well. And what, not, what better picture could there be when he's talking about Jesus and the church? We have divorced Christ. He is our first love. That is what he's telling us right here. I have this against you. Jesus has this against us that we have abandoned him. We have divorced Christ. In Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, it's going to come up on the screen, I believe. It says... While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my brother? And who, or who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus makes it clear that the one who does the will of God is the one that he loves, and we must put him first. He put his disciples in front of even his own earthly family. And that is not something easy to do. I don't know about you, but whenever it comes to speaking about God to our family, sometimes that can be difficult. It doesn't need to be. And yet God was willing to deny his own family for his disciples in that moment. Not saying that they didn't need him, but simply that his disciples came first. And for us, he must come first. So the question I have for us as a church, the question I have for you is how have you divorced Christ? 
How have you abandoned him? I know as I thought about this question, there's a few things that might come to mind. One thing in particular is, you know, if we put everything in a box, that tends to not show our love for Jesus at all. When it's about coming to church, or when it's about reading your Bible, or it's about going to small group or serving, and it's just that, and that's the thing, and once you do it, you know, it's done. That is not loving Christ. That is abandoning him. We read in the Old Testament of all the times that he asks of his body, or his, uh, the Israelites, to sacrifice to him. But he's, it's not about the sacrifices. It's about the hearts. It's about their hearts, and he wants our hearts. Maybe it's not that you check boxes, but maybe it's you have something ahead of him. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's good things. Maybe it's sin. Maybe you have some sin issue that's an idol in your life. Maybe it's work or money, but whatever that thing is, when you put that in front of Christ, you are abandoning him. Even if it's a good thing, maybe, it's not the best thing. For he is the best thing, and he is the one that will give us the power to even love our families and those other things the way we need to do. Maybe it's the opposite problem. Maybe you neglect some people that need you. Maybe you don't lead your family the way you need to, or your coworkers, or your friends, or whoever it is in your life that you are discipling. God has put you in their life to lead them. And when you aren't leading them well, you are hurting them. So what is the solution? If we have abandoned Christ, what do we do about it? He tells us in verse 5. It says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So if you have never known Jesus, this isn't even possible for you because you have to remember something. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you do come to know him one day. You can talk to me. You can talk to the leaders here. Find someone and talk to them about Jesus. And then... Once you remember where you've fallen from, repent. Turn back. Go back to where you started. And do what you did at first. Now, I, I kind of struggled when I got to this part because do what I did at first. I just talked about those boxes that we check and how that becomes idol, idyllic and we're idolizing things instead of God. And it's kind of this confusing problem. So what do we do? And, and God, God tells us, in uh, Matthew 22, he says, verses 37 through 40, should come up on the screen again. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And it's, it's not easy. We so badly want to have boxes to check. We want it to, to be simple and for us just to go, yep, I did that, I did that, I'm good. But that's not what God calls us to. God doesn't tell us to go to church on Sunday and read your Bible and pray and that's it. He tells us, love him. Love him completely. And love others. And that is it. That should define all of us. Our whole life should be defined by our love for him. When we read in the morning, if our hearts in the, aren't in the right spot, then it's not doing us any good. If we're not loving him first, then it doesn't matter if you read honestly, but still read. <laughs> and 
I mean, you think about it. He tells us love God and love others. When we're out and we're living our lives, do you know those times when you're actually loving God and people can tell? Because it's not necessarily because you did something nice for them or because you did anything in particular, but your whole demeanor, your whole soul is impacted by the joy you have from loving God. And that is what brings people to know him. And there are some great punishments and great rewards attached to this promise. If we read at the end of verse 5 in Revelation 2, it says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what the Spirit says to Cornerstone. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray now. Father God, I thank you for the fact that you never abandon us, even when we abandon you. And you are a God that gives us grace over and over again to turn back to you, Lord. I pray that our love for you would define us more than anything else, and that it would cover every part of our lives. We pray this all in your son's holy and majestic name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kyle. My name is Daniel. Let's continue reading. I'm going to pick up in verse 8. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. <clears throat> There's not a whole lot that we know about the church in Smyrna. We're not even really sure who started it, or who founded it. So I'm not going to waste my time talking about the uh, geological location or, or really even their surrounding culture, because quite frankly, now that really matters with what we're going to be dealing with today, because this really, I could hear it when I read it, but the only words that really are concerning us and really concern me uh, when I read this, and probably the only words that really concern uh, Smyrna when the first time they read this, was verse 10, where it says, do not fear what you are about to suffer, right? Like, if I'm Smyrna, I'm like, man, Ephesus has fallen in love with me again, and I'm over here with, don't worry what you're about to suffer? Like, come on, man. And really, the first time, I, we, we picked these churches at random, and when I picked mine, I was like, of course I would pick out of the seven, the suffering church. Of course I would do that. Anyway, my point is, nobody wants to suffer, right? Not like, if I, if I asked you to raise your hand, which I'm not going to do, I said, raise your hand if you are a Christian. Tons of hands would go up. And I said, now, leave your hands up if you think you've been called to suffer. People would be like, oh, I don't want to do that. But here, here's my point. If you raised your hand when you said, I'm a Christian, it better stay up when I ask if you've been called to suffer. Because we've all been called to suffer. I know I'm... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm bringing encouragement to you this morning. Uh, and hopefully we'll get there. But here, really quickly, I want to prove it to you. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told us, right? Uh, some of you already know where I'm going. It says in, in, in uh, chapter 10, he said, if, if the world hates you, know that it, it hated me before it hated you. And it goes on to say, and if they persecuted me, of course they're going to persecute you. In Matthew 16, verse 24, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? <clears throat> the very definition of laying down your life to pick up his is sacrificial. There's suffering in that. So don't fear suffering. As a Christian, you don't have to fear it. You never face that suffering alone. And your suffering always produces fruit. James 1 verse 3 says, Count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, the church here in America, we really rail against the idea of suffering. But church, where church is exploding, people are, they're, they're, they jump up and down when they are counted faithful to endure suffering for their Savior. And that's the message that I want to bring to you this morning. And it's, I, I, forgive the analogy here, but when I was thinking about how to correctly portray this, this is a lot like um, uh, the Karate Kid, where Mr. Miyagi tells, his, tells Daniel LaRusso, go uh, paint, uh, sand the floor, wax the car, paint the fence. And Daniel LaRusso is like, man, I want to learn karate. I'm out here sanding your decks, waxing your cars, painting your fence. Your yard looks great, but I, you've taught me nothing. And I'm sore from head to toe, right? And then and Mr. Miyagi's like, oh, you, you fool. Like, show me. Sand the floor, right? And if you know the movie, he's like, ah. And all of a sudden, he realizes this pain that he's been in has actually been teaching him what he needed. The suffering that you are going through, you may not understand it at the time until you need it. Okay? <clears throat> the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay? Push through the pain and watch your relationship with the Lord flourish and come to life. Because while you're going through it, he is with you. All right? No matter how things shake out, when you are a Christian, God will use everything, good, bad, or otherwise, to make you more like Christ. And as you go through it, what you will hear over and over again is you are loved. You will know that you are loved. We have a king and a savior who knows what we're going through, and he doesn't stand far off. He doesn't just know what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. He can commiserate with you. What you're going through does not compare to the sacrifice that he's already paid. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. There is purpose in your pain. 
And this is the point that I want you to hear today. Listen very carefully, because this is the point that I, want, that I want you to get out of this. For love to mean anything at all, it has to cost something. I'm going to say that one more time. For love to mean anything at all, it has to cost you something. Okay? And I'll explain what I mean by that. When God gave up his only son for you, it proved that he loved you more than the cost of the death of losing his only son. Right? His one and only son, that was the cost. He paid that price willingly because of how much he loved you. He loved you more than that pain. Right? If we are pursuing the Christian thing because we hope to use the creator of the universe as if he were a genie in the bottle, the world understands that. The world gets that kind of love. It's a self-serving love. I mean, we are, we are sick. Every, look at any kind of advertising because it's all about you. We all, we all want to be loved. We all want to feel love, right? We all want to feel important. But very rarely do we want to pay for the love, right? We want, to, we want to be important to somebody, but when it comes down to folding socks for my wife, that's a, I have to make that purchase, right? I only have three kids and there's still a lot of socks. I can't imagine the tooting house. <laughs> Sorry. But if we are laying down our life and picking up our cross to follow our Savior, even when it's brutal, even when it means suffering, Enduring suffering, not just a quick, that is a gut punch, but enduring suffering. Our actions are proving that our love is the genuine article. And to a lovesick world, a love-hungry world that speaks volumes. Because if you, are, if, you are, if you are getting kicked, if you are getting persecuted, and you don't abandon your love, then the people around you go, that's got to be real. What does that person have? Why would they stick around? Why would they go to prison? No one goes to prison for a lie. But when you're patient and when you, when you are patient and you endure your suffering and it, and it produces, your testing of your faith produces endurance, you will go to prison because you know Jesus is there. He is there with you. And when people see that, they go, that's real. That is, that is real. And I want it. Finally, if the worst should happen. Oh, I missed a point. If you have enemies that want to pursue you, that's good. It means you've stood up for something in your life. Okay? You cannot walk the Christian walk and not find enemies. You can't do it. So if you have enemies, that means you're on the right path. And then finally, if the worst should happen, stay faithful. Jesus is coming back and he's bringing a reward. We all die. Every one of us in this room is going to die. Unless Jesus comes back before that happens. But all of us are going to die. I would much rather die for something than of something. Some of you have heard other people say that before, but it's true. We're all going to die. If you get to choose your, <laughs> the way you go out, choose it. 
I'll end with 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. It says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not, in, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God that does not stand far off, but stands right in the middle of the storms of this life with us. And you often plan, you, you plan for us to go through those so that we can see you clearly. We can see your hand. We can feel your arms of love wrapped around us. Lord, I pray that that work that you're doing in many of these lives today, right now that are listening to this, that they would see your face clearly, that they would feel your love more abundantly, and that they would know that they are rich. Lord, we love you. Thank you for being a God that loves us. Amen. Amen. I'm Sean Price. I'm the leader of the music team. You normally see me like you did today, um, behind a microphone, singing and playing guitar, which I love to do, by the way. But today I'm super excited to be able to bring the word to you. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, we're going to look at the message to Pergamum, verses 12 through 17. And right off the bat, we're going to see that God loves when we live out our walk. And we've been, here, we've been hearing that today, but we're going to see that here. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. God acknowledges that he knows where we live and we live in the world. And Pastor Doug did a great job of, of uh, talking to us about that a couple weeks ago in Revelation 17, where it talks about the seven-headed harlot. It honestly, if you read it, sounds like something out of a horror movie, but it describes perfectly the world system that we're in. So let's remember that, yes, we are saved, born-again Christians, but we are to be a light in this world. That wasn't by accident. If God didn't have a plan for you, he'd save you and you'd already be with him. So let's remember that. Um, I love how he specifically points out Antipas, my faithful one who died for the faith. Um, he applauds Antipas for being an overcomer. And, we're, and we, we saw um, in the message to uh, Ephesus how there's a reward for an overcomer. Um, and we're going to see here as well at the end uh, a reward that the Lord has for an overcomer. And I just want to remind you that he also applauds, so we may not um, have the opportunity, I'll call it, to die for the faith, um, but we do go through trials and tribulations, right? We do have temptations that hit us on a daily basis. And so I want to just point out to you that the Lord also applauds you. That is also an overcomer, right? When you uh, resist temptation and when you go through a trial or tribulation and like Dan just talked about, showing that you really love the Lord, your God through it, the Lord applauds you for that. Let's read verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality, 
so you also have some who, in the, name of, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It sounds like a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> when I read that, I'm like, man, that's a lot of bad stuff. And then the Lord reminded me, yeah, but I'm talking to the church. So let's remember that. He's talking to us. And so, you know, the, the professing Christians, the one who should be proclaiming the gospel, this is what they were doing. And, and I get it. Like, if you invite my family and I over for dinner, I, I, I'm sure that there's not going to be some big, huge statue that you're going to make me bow down to before I enter your house and, you know, and as, and as we leave. But what do you have that is, is in place of the gospel or in front of the gospel? What idols do we have? Right? Look at even verse 14 where it says that they did these things to be a stumbling block. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not a stumbling block, Sean. I mean, I don't, I don't have idols. I'm not sitting there. I'm not trying to, you know, take the Kennedys and try to convert them to Mormonism or anything like that. But I just want to point out, does anyone have one of these? Anybody? Right? Yeah, we're all nodding our heads, right? One of the best and worst things that Apple ever installed on the iPhone was that, um, oh, I just drew a blank. Thank you. Screen time. I hate that thing. But I looked at it last night just to, point, just to prove this point, and I looked at my phone, and it's just pickups, right? So it actually tracks your pickups an average of 90 times a day. Now, I, I use my cell phone as, a, as my business line as well. So yes, I am on all day. But regardless, I can guarantee you that if I, if I tracked all the times I, I prayed for any of you guys or worshiped my Savior or read my Bible, I, all week long, it wasn't 90 times, right? So it, if you haven't looked at that, look at it. It's very convicting. Um, I also want to quickly point out that he does talk about the Nicolaitans, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and that is a doctrine that actually teaches come as you are, stay as you are. Uh, we heard it sort of alluded to in the last couple of messages that we just heard this morning, but guys, that's a very popular teaching today. Just come as you are, stay as you are. That's not right. Come as you are, yes. It doesn't matter what junk you have on as you come in, but you should leave different. You should grow as you come on a Sunday morning and hear God's word proclaimed every single Sunday. You should be getting up every morning and reading God's word or before you go to bed, right? You should be having a relationship with Jesus. Verse 16, I just, I, I imagine warning labels all the way across this verse. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There is a lot packed in that verse. I don't have time to unpack. But I'm just going to quickly note that he's speaking specifically of his second coming. He's going, guys, get your act together because I'm coming back. And when I do, it's going to be bad. So again, he's talking to us. He's talking to the church. And it sounds like, again, he's talking to that unbeliever, right? Get saved or else you're going to go to hell. And yes, that's absolutely true. But he's talking to us. It's judgment for us because we're each going to stand before the Lord. He's going he's to judge us for each one of our good and bad behaviors. Man, I'm going to talk to you just for a minute. I almost wasn't going to do this, but the Lord told me I needed to. We need to step up and lead our families. We need to step up and lead our wives. I can admit that for the first several years of marriage, my wife was a spiritual leader for the first several years. And you may, what you see of me, you may not even imagine that, but it's absolutely 100% true. But I promise you that if you talk to any of my children or my wife, that they will tell you 
the different man that I am because I get up every morning and I read God's word. It's not because this guy yells at us about it every Sunday, because he does, and I'm thankful he does, but it's because I decided I needed to have that relationship with my Lord. So, men, if you're not, do it. I, I promise you there were mornings I didn't want to get up, but I did, because I knew that the Lord had something for me, and it got to the point where because I was renewing my mind so much through God's word, and through the, the, the different ways I was interacting with my kids and their behaviors and things like that, that I was actually almost waking up dreaming that I wanted to have that relationship with, with my Lord in the morning. So I, I challenge you to do that. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands and encourage them. That's the one thing I love about my wife that she did. She never beat me up about it. She just loved me through it. And frankly, for the first couple of months, she was kind of like, is this really going to last? But it did. And she continued to encourage me through it. So wives, encourage your husbands. And children, submit yourselves to your moms and dads. There, there is power in that order of the family. And with that, I'm convinced that we as a church will be able to detect those things that are idols in our lives, right? It says in Hebrews that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. He will pierce through that junk and it is powerful. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I love that the New Living Translation just adds that has been hidden away in heaven. Like God has a secret stash of, of manna that he's just been just waiting to have with you. That he, by the way, had with Antipas that we saw at the beginning of the, of the passage. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. He's saying at the very beginning, by the way, um, where it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. He's saying, guys, eyes up, ears open. Okay, listen up. Yes, I do love you. I love when you're, you know, living out your walk. Yes, here's the warning, but listen, because I love you. I, I, I'm applauding you, is what the Lord's really saying. He goes, I want you to be an overcomer. And I am sitting there. He, guys, it's like, it's, like, it's like he's at a game, right? He's at the edge of his seat. And he's just going, yeah, let's go. He wants us to be overcomers. All right? But it starts tomorrow morning when we wake up. It continues throughout the week as we go about our day. And we remember that we're stuck in this nasty world, but it's not a mistake by God. Okay, God knew. He called his shot to John when he wrote it. And again, Revelation 17, that we were going to be in this world. So be the light that God has called you to be. I'm going to go ahead and ask the music team to come up. And the cool thing about being the guy leading the music is that I get to uh, transition back into that. And we have the privilege to bring a new song to you that the Lord just had in my heart for several months. And one of the things I challenge my team to do often, that I do often, is even on songs that we do regularly, just read through the words without any music, without any like even tone in your, um, or any tune in your ear. And so we're just gonna read over verse one in the chorus of this song. It says, I have tasted all that this world has to offer. The here and gone that leaves you wanting more but can't satisfy. 
Father, forgive me for taking so long to see that you're all I need. I love the chorus. With every heartbeat in my chest, Lord, I surrender all that I have. The days yet to come, the days in the past, I'm giving you all that I am with lifted hands. And so it's been my prayer for you this week that as I prepare this little mini message, and Doug, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to share that. Uh, but it's been my prayer, this has been my prayer over you guys, over this team that, that leads us um, into song, but also over you guys, because if we are his, and if we really want to live this Christian walk seriously, really this should be our prayer, right? This should be our re reminder that we were lost. We were, we still, even if you're saved, I still seek out other things that I don't need. I, all I need is my Savior. So as we worship through this here in a minute, um, I, I ask that you make that your prayer this week. Let's pray. Father, I love you. And I thank you, Lord, for who you are in our lives. Father, I thank you for the man that you've made me, Lord. The, uh, the way that you speak truth into my life, Lord. The way you, that you speak truth into all of our lives, Lord. I thank you so much for being a personal God. It's such a, you're such a huge God. And there's billions and billions of people in this world, but those that know you, you are personal to them. So Lord, thank you for impacting my life this week through this message. Thank you, Lord, for impacting my life with this song. And I pray that that be what happens with uh, this church this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.